Welcome to HACCP Mentor, where it's all about helping you make your food business compliance easier. Sit back and relax as we get our food safety, HACCP and quality compliance on. Welcome back, everybody, to episode two in our series on risk management. So this is off the menu. Uh, Welcome, Pete, my trusty sidekick. How have you been going? Nice. (laughs) You're my sidekick? Surely. surely. Yes, yes, you have been for a long time. Oh, my God. So we started talking about risk management in our previous episode and we basically introduced the Hazard Mentor listeners to ISO 31000 and we went into the guiding principles and the risk management framework. So we're going to continue on with that in this episode and we're going to start looking at the importance of leadership and how that actually relates to section 5.2 of that ISO 31000 standard and would like to also give a few practical tips and guidance on how an organisation would go through and implement that. Are you cool with that happening today? Sure. So let's start off then looking at this part of the standards all about leadership and commitment. What basically is leadership and commitment in an organisation and what would that actually look like for a business? John F. Kennedy was credited of coining a phrase, which he didn't, by the way, but we're not going to go into it. But <laughs> Right, so we're starting off straight off with false. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But, but the right. phrase is relevant. <laughs> okay. Go, let's the phrase go is that. definitely relevant. It says, uh, a rising tide lifts all boats. And what that really talks to is how leadership is seen to enhance an organisation. It talks about how government and policy takes a, a country forward. It's got all sorts of meanings and connotations to that. It was actually came out of in the 1800s, I believe, a, a British industry council that was set up at the time and they were talking about how industry lifts a country to go forward. So why, why on earth am I talking about that? Well, because as with any system, risk, quality, food, safety, you name it, uh, it's got to start from the top and it's got to be uh, instrumental in how the business chooses to think and act about its business. So why why is leadership so important is because it's uh, charged with writing the policy of risk, which means what does risk look like inside this organisation? And I think from the last podcast as well, I, I um, expounded on this point quite substantially, but uh, let, let me reiterate again, is none of these systems work in a vacuum. They work as a result of people doing work, as a result of people making better decisions daily on how to get through the day. And that doesn't mean that people work uh, individually and um, autonomously on on systems. Systems are put in place to, to take a business from point A to point B. So therefore, with a risk system, it's the same thing. People are charged with making better decisions daily based on where the business is trying to take itself and where they get their idea on how to think about a problem that's put in front of them or how to think about a situation and then how to respond is by leadership telling them that this is how we would like the business to respond to 
it's uh, it's daily progress. So that's why leadership needs to be involved in these systems. So where does this sit then? I commonly hear some organisations have this whole ethos of from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. So how does that way of doing business, which I personally don't think that ever works, I'm very yeah. much a believer, if you want your staff to do and succeed and comply, it's got to come from management. Management's got to demonstrate, the, you know, show the commitment. They've got to demonstrate the activity that they're abiding. There's, there's no two sets of rules for things going on. How does that happen? So if we've got people listening mm. who are in an organisation which sprouts the thing of, okay, it's, it's led from the bottom up, not the other way around. Well, it's interesting. This is the age-old argument of um, separation of church and state or dogma versus pragma here. So, you know, um, ground up or bottom up, roots up, uh, design development, that's an example of pragma where you try things, you do things, you learn from mistakes, and then you implement the successes that come from that, and then eventually it percolates up to look like the whole business is successful. Dogma is really the other way around. It's a top-down approach to how are we going to be successful and uh, how can you be successful using what we're, what we're preaching to you. So is there a place for, uh, you know, roots-based um, growth with risk? Well, look, I'm sure there is, uh, and, and that really talks to maybe the, the daily practical application of a policy, which, and that talks about a procedure. What, what sort of procedure is going to help us understand how risk uh, relates to my job. I'm sitting there uh, monitoring, you know, like raw chicken uh, meat that's going through a a sanitation bath at the moment to um, make sure the chlorine levels are okay so that the chicken's appropriately sanitised, for instance. So how does risk relate to me? Why would a CEO come down and tell me whether I'm doing my job right? Well, they won't. But what they're telling you is that we need to have the chlorine bath that's sanitising the chickens and the chlorine's got to be at a certain level because if we don't do that, we're selling adulterated product or we're selling dangerous goods and that's against legislation and regulation that's set out there. So there is an understanding that how do I make risk appropriate to me and that could be looking at it from the, from the roots approach. But definitely why we're doing risk, and this is the most important thing, why are we putting risk practices in place comes from the top because it's something that the CEO, the CFO, the board of directors all say, we want a business that's not going to be presented with any external risk, that it's not putting itself in danger by what it does, what it buys in, what it sells out, how it markets it, markets itself in the marketplace and what our staff are doing and saying about our business in and out of work hours. So th- there, is, there is a need for both approaches here. There's no way the CEO is going to come down and sit on the shop floor and say, you know what, hold that hold that broom in your left hand versus your right hand because you're going to get a better effect. That's never going to happen. But they're definitely going to tell you that we need sanitation practices because our business image relies on a, on a tidy shop floor, uh, mm-hmm. which is going to in, enhance our good hygienic practices and our good work practices, which is going to lead to a quality safe product out the door. So Yeah. So how does that, then when we look at a lot of our GFSI standards like BRCGS, SQF and FSSC 22000, they've all got a component around 
leadership and commitment. For an organisation who sees that requirement in one of their guiding standards, you've got to have leadership, you've got to demonstrate commitment. How would an organisation go about doing that? What, in the practical sense, does that actually look like? Leadership and commitment within an organisation. Yeah, and so normally when you're putting a system in place or you're deploying some sort of practice within the business, it usually involves the use of human capital, so a person's doing something. It usually involves time in order to design, develop and implement and test, so the whole plan, do, check, act cycle. And then sometimes it even requires money and capital asset in order to affect great change in the business. Those sorts of parameters only happen as a result of executive input and uh, responsibility to the system. Again, if you've got to change your chlorine bath because it's uh, not appropriately sanitising your your chicken flesh as it's going through or your whole carcass as it's going through, that's a big spend. That's what we call capex or capital expenditure. And that's got to come from much higher up. And the only reason you'd be able to get that approved is people understand that there is an importance with this process and there's an importance with product going through a process in order to achieve a safe outcome. The only way that happens is when leadership listens to what's happening on the, on the, on the factory floor, floor. understands so- the importance of doing what they're being requested of and then applies the appropriate outcome, the right decision, risk-based decision again to that process. And so that only comes from top down. What you're saying there is, and I'll just wrap that bit up in a nutshell, is that that leadership, one of the ways that they can show commitment and leadership is they have to allocate resources. So whether those resources are financial, physical capital time, which is one thing that we see lacks a lot in the food industry that I constantly get told I don't get enough time to do cleaning or I don't get enough time to fill out records. I don't get enough time to do the maintenance on equipment. That would be one way of demonstrating commitment for an organisation is to make sure that they've allocated sufficient resources. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, time is uh, time is the enemy of all man, unfortunately. And uh, the, most people, when they're sitting in a business, particularly a, a successful, profitable, productive, efficient business, find that their time is uh, very finely managed in order to achieve outcomes. And so when you're introducing something new, where does that time come from to manage something new or to implement something new or to check something new? And so in order to to make it stick in the business, make it sticky, is top-down allocation of time. And uh, it's almost like granting permission to to use time to to do this new thing, which is risk-based practices, which, again, risk-based practices is all about making better decisions daily based on an assessment of your environment your activities and the likely outcome of those things. So that has to come from top down by saying you've now got time to go off and hold a meeting that talks about it's a development meeting or a project meeting that talks about how we're going to get this in place. It's not, by the way, stay on on the processing line and someone's going to talk at you about how do we do this whilst you're stuffing chooks in a bag into a box type thing. That's never going to happen. 
So, so it sounds like then we've got two levels of time allocation. We've got the, the time allocation for the actual development of the project or to put whatever new procedure or process in place. But then we also need to have the allocated time to actually implement. So we've got the planning and then we've got the implementation. So I think a lot of people struggle with the fact that they don't get the time to implement because of whatever reason that you know, all of a sudden we now have to do X, Y, Z, maybe from an external source has made that mandatory. What I see generally during audits is that management hasn't kind of thought about, okay, well, now that we have to fill out five new records, what is the time impact of having to fill out those five new records? I mean, the, the other side of this coin too is if leadership is demonstrating commitment to the process, it shows that it's important and therefore it must be important to everyone else in the factory or in the in the place of work as well. That if if leadership and if you look at their dollar per hour cost to a business because they're in the overhead box, they're some of the greatest overhead costs to a business, if they're allocating their personal time and cost to it, then surely someone working in the factory or in the service area should understand that it's uh, equally as important to them. So there's, there's a number of ways of showing commitment and uh, engaging in this is um, if management shows that it's important, everyone else should feel that. And the other side of this to Amanda is that uh, executive leadership should be open and willing to receive feedback from uh, factory floor or shop floor about the process and whether it's practical to put it in place and whether it's appropriate and whether it's timely and whether we can manage and sustain it. So all of this, that's what we mean by the commitment. It's not only the commitment to push policy down, but it's, in, it's a commitment to listen to feedback on how the, how the process is working. Working and implemented. Yeah. So in, in saying that, a practical implementation of that would be to have some type of feedback form or comment section or, or something like that as part of the whole food safety culture or the culture of the organisation. Sure. It could be a routine walkthrough of the plant by executive management. It could be attending a, 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 a daily pre-work meeting or, or an end-of-day shift meeting or an end-of-week meeting. It's, uh, it could be a result of a corrective action review meeting. It could be executive management joining the opening and closing meetings of an audit on site and understanding what's going on. There are numbers of ways of making this look practical and uh, real to the business uh, and demonstrating executive commitment. I think one of the other ones too, which we generally see in all of the audits that we do, is this whole thing around developing an organisation policy which outlines that commitment. One of the first things that we look at during audits is, okay, where's your food safety policy or where's your quality management policy? And then what we're looking for in those policies is to see that management has declared commitment, like in writing, that they're committed to compliance, they're committed to allocating resources and implementing and maintaining a particular compliance system, whether it be food safety or workplace or whatever. With that policy, Pete, what are the main things that should be included in that policy when we, we're looking at the requirements of ISO 31000? Yeah, absolutely. So the policy should be talking about that we've uh, appropriate uh, that uh, management or leadership has 
allocated sufficient amount of resources for it to happen and that there is sufficient authority responsibility and accountability within the teams to make sure that it's effective and it's being implemented and that there is sufficient time is being given both internally and externally to check to make sure that it is happening appropriately as well. So that's the, the, the whole plan do check act thing is the planning is as time and as resource allocated to getting it right that you've got people with the right responsibility, authority and accountability to get it in place, that you're allowing the checking of the system. And then the last part is really returning to the cycle that there's enough resource applied to act on things when it's found that the system you put in place isn't working as efficiently as it needs to be. So with that then, so we're speaking about that in the context of the actual organisation policy or food safety policy, quality policy, looking at that whole assigning authority, responsibility and accountability, would it be a good idea, let's say, is that those three things get allocated to every procedure written for the business? Yeah, I think uh, most procedures have got to have some sort of premise or background as to why this procedure is being written. And so if there's a way of referencing the policy, which is the why statement, whatever you're doing, whatever you're doing, should always start with why you're doing it. It's going to have far more relevance to the person who actually has to use that procedure or that form or that practice is because most people want to know why am I doing something at work they don't just want to you know blithely and blindly go in there and just do stuff and not necessarily think about why I'm doing it how well I should be doing it and what happens when I start and stop doing it people want to understand you know why has this been allocated to me why do I need to attend this meeting you know what why do I need to? <laughs> because I asked you. <laughs> Most people say that, right? Why, why am I listening you. to this podcast? Because we yeah. told you to. <laughs> <laughs> we can only hope. When you have to go and allocate authority, responsibility, and accountability, from a practical sense, should we be writing people's names, or is it okay to write positions? I think um, I think it's it's good to write a position because people can change frequently in an organisation and the position at least allows people to understand the the hierarchy of uh, responsibility of how things go through but that doesn't mean to say that people's names don't need to appear on things and this in particular is on a form and why a form is important here because this shows the doing of the practice which is linked to the policy and whenever you've got a form there should be a space for someone to put their name on that form as I did this, I checked that, I wrote this, I was there or we were there. And that's how you make it a little bit more personal. And that's that level of responsibility then that, hey, I understand I have to do this and my name's on it. But most importantly, I'm signing off that what's written here is accurate and true and valid. Yeah, so that is a requirement, that whole signing of activities throughout HACCP, BRC, SQF, FISMA, any type of regulatory, you have to have signed that record. You're also having someone verify those records to make sure that they are true and correct and it did happen. Records have to be completed at the time of undertaking the activity, not two weeks in advance like I have seen before as an auditor. The only problem I have with that around allocating a position is 
when there's multiple positions in a in an organisation of mm. the same, so you might have four or five people are all, say, shift supervisors. Mm, sure. And there's always that assumption, oh, other bloke did that or yep. blah, 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 and shift Bs, oh, they'll do that. So then it never gets done. That's that's true. Like when there's, as with any system risk included, is when many people are tasked with the responsibility, no one has responsibility. And for the reasons that you just said, it's you know not my job, finger pointing, uh, old mate's job, over to you type thing. And that's when we write these things. We've got to be quite specific about where the responsibility and the accountability lies. There's various tools that do that, particularly in a risk system. There's something called a RACI, R-A-C-I, which stands for Responsible, Accountable, Consulted and Informed. And at any policy or procedure or practice, there could be multiple people that have one of those response, one of those uh, activities assigned to them. And it's a really helpful tool, particularly if you're trying to put a new process in place, you're trying to innovate, you're trying to test something, or you're just trying to maintain a process, is to think about that sort of practice in those terms. Who's responsible for making sure this practice and this procedure happens? Who's accountable to actually getting it done? Who's been consulted to make sure that it can be done? And who just needs to be informed about the outcomes? Of it, so that's just one tool. There are very many tools out there, and RACI can be various acronyms along the way. There's, if you look it up, you know, if you wiki it, you can see there's a whole bunch of different ones. But yeah. you're really talking to a good point there, Amanda, which is about how do you make these specific enough so that people understand where their responsibility, where their responsibility comes in, yeah. and that can also tie back into training as well. How how well have they been trained to understand, to understand that they're responsible at this point or they're accountable? What I'll do is I'll put a link in the show notes to that RACI system as well if people want to explore that a bit further. But I think one of the other things that very much ties in with leadership commitment is what you just said, the whole training piece of it all. It's all well and good to say at the top level and have it documented in your policy that we're, we're committed, we're going to do X, Y, Z. But if you don't have the allocation of training resources, and that could be, again, time, trainers, material, it's all going to fall over. So it's all just been a waste of time, really. That, that's exactly right. Training is a really important communication tool. And as we know with risk, risk is a social system. It's not run by one person and one responsibility within the business that everyone has a say in communication into how risk management practices work and how they make better decisions daily as a result of a risk-based system. So training is one way of communicating that responsibility, that accountability, and that uh, consulted and informed approach to a risk management system. You can't effectively put in one of these systems without some form of communication and training and, and uh, uh, if you don't do it, it, then what you're going to end up with is just another one of these paid for bolted on systems that are meaningless and are there just for a, a marketing uh, purpose. Yeah. We're talking about risk in the relationship to our business and what that looks like and, and showing leadership and commitment to the process there. How does it actually fit when you have people like BRC, SQF, all these other parties, might even be regulatory oversight bodies, when they're coming in, mm. Are they looking at risk for our business or are they 
Are they looking at it as a whole for the industry? And how can that be detrimental to our business if they're kind of pegging us against the rest of the industry? Well, I think they come with a different lens, Amanda. And um, what I mean by that is they come in with the, the risk-based auditing approach, which is where in your business are the highest risk processes that we need to be looking at? And then how do we audit those practices to make sure that they're under control? And, you know, by and large, HACCP does that. HACCP is a, is a risk-based process where it looks for the, the most critical steps and, then, and, and the highest risk steps and then how to control them through your critical control points and your monitoring along the way. So they're really concerned with, they're going to come into an organisation and say, show me where your greatest risk is. Is it in manpower and, and personnel competency and capability? Is it in the machinery and the, and the, the uh, productivity of, of the organisation? Is it in the layout or is it in the support programs? You tell us and we'll tell you if, uh, if it looks appropriate or not. So they come in with a different lens. Whereas if you're working inside the business, you're looking at it from multiple facets because you have multiple standards providers possibly coming into your organisation with a very slightly different lens every time. And I think also, too, with those certification bodies, doesn't matter which certification body is, they, they are, like you said, looking at it from that lens, but they're also looking at it from a point of if your business was to completely stuff up that's going to impact our brand because we certified you as a business and you're not complying or you've had a recall things like that hence why all of those certification standards it's a requirement that you notify them within x amount of hours that you've had a product recall because the risk to them is they're going to be tainted that our auditors did the audit and now you're having a recall. Yeah, and so risk has a halo effect on uh, on the industry. Just because your business is experiencing a problem doesn't mean it's going to in, not going to impact a bigger uh, bigger set of uh, manufacturers or producers or service providers within the same space. Because if you're a consumer and you go to the store and you buy a bottle of milk and all of a sudden there's a big sticker on the fridge in the supermarket saying product recall, you're going to say, well, hang on a minute, how many other uh, milk jugs or bottles of milk in this fridge are suffering the same problem? So you're less likely to buy refrigerated milk. You might go to the long life section or you might go and buy the powdered milk because you think it's safer for whatever reason. So it's not just that company that's that's impacted, it's impacting the whole industry. And I I think we saw that with the... uh, the needles in strawberry incident here in Australia where it wiped out the Australian strawberry industry for one whole harvest because they didn't know, the consumer didn't know, and most importantly, um, the regulators didn't know where it was going to hit next. So because one place was unsafe, every place is unsafe and everyone had to dump their product unless you could demonstrate reasonable cause to to show that you're uh, better controlled and safer than somebody else. It, it doesn't just affect your business. It's then the risk absorbed by everybody else in your industry. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's what we call that halo effect that, uh, you know, it's not just you. It's this, uh, it's this uh, radius of risk or impact that's happening all around you as a result of what you've done. And uh, it could even be that you're buying in 
uh, raw material from somewhere and it's and it's uh, linked to the raw material, then other people that use that raw material are also uh, likely to be impacted. As well, yeah. Have you seen any bad examples of uh, lack of commitment and leadership through your travels? Unfortunately, yes, and, and unfortunately far too often where some people see it as maybe a, a board-only activity where the board says, you know, we're, we're only prepared to tolerate this amount of risk in the business and then leaves it to the CEO to try and figure out what to do with that and the CEO mightn't have the training, the experience or the skills to deal with that situation and therefore it gets implemented poorly and, and probably only at a financial level, not at an operational or a strategic or a marketing level, anything like that. It only sits purely at a financial level. Now, other examples are where it is purely just driven roots up and uh, it's, it fails to, to um, percolate through to, to the higher level in the business where there's absolutely no understanding that there's even a risk system in place and what it does. Um, very classic examples are workplace health and safety and, and looking at the incident rates of uh, injury within an organisation, if that's on an ever-increasing or trending upward uh, line, that gives you a very good example that there's no responsibility being taken by management to and by leadership to change that practice. Um, it could be a food, a food company that uh, continually is in a, in a product recall state. Uh, it could be that they're getting um, a, a restaurant or, or something like that that's constantly getting fines from the health department for um, unclean, unsafe, Dirty unhygienic practices. practices. So if any of our listeners out there who are in an organisation where they don't feel comfortable with the level of leadership and commitment, what can they do? Well, that's an interesting thing. I mean. Um, most companies have what's called a whistleblower policy if it gets kind of serious where they can go straight to a board member and uh, report serious breaches. Um, if, it's, if they're in a food retail or food service environment and they see uh, a direct impact to, to customer or consumer, then they've got an obligation to report it to health authorities or regulatory authorities. And if it's just within a business and, if, uh, you know, things like workplace health and safety, there's a, there's a safe work regulator in every state that they can report things to and anonymously as well. They don't have to put their name on it. But if we're talking about, say, a risk-based system within an organisation, then they should keep trying to escalate it further into the organisation until it's being heard. So what about if they're in a small business? So if we say there's, I don't know, no more than 20 people Mm-hmm. In that organization, well, you know they don't they don't have a board. It might just be a partnership or something sure. like that. What can we do if we're an employee of those type of organizations? That then it's definitely where they're looking. That. Yeah, they're they're looking externally for assistance then, and that's with the with the regulator, uh, with with um, uh, some other governing body that oversees it. There could be an industry association that looks. That could that could be useful as well. I know in the food industry, there's there's um, like AIFST, for instance, that might be able to provide some assistance in certain areas. There are risk associations that can help. And I guess the other part is to make sure that it's been communicated that the risks 
that they're seeing or or uh, experiencing within the organisation are being accurately communicated as well. And quite often the language of risk gets lost because people aren't clear on how to best report it. And that's where that the racy structure comes in on that C and the I part. Like who, do, who are they consulting with to make sure that their, their message is clear and who's being informed of what they're finding? So it's about uh, best utilising those tools in-house and yeah. you know, failing, failing all that. There could be, a, um, you know, a, a third-party person that's willing to listen and, and perhaps come in and give them some advice as well, a mentor or a coach or something like that. So definitely if you're in that situation, because I do get emails from a lot of people who are in a similar situation, definitely try and raise it in-house and go up the chain and I think even if you explain the issue in the context of the impact of whatever the issue is to the organisation or what the potential impact is, that may help the management see that they may need to change certain behaviours or certain activities to come into line with you know, safer practices. There's ways of communicating risk without it seeming confronting or uh, aggressive or a hostile act or anything like that. It's more, it's that who are you consulting to help you better inform others of what you're seeing? And often, you know, if you see a risk, it's good to talk about what are the solutions to the risk as well so that people understand where it goes because people are time crunched, as we said, and they, they suffer decision burnout throughout the day. Imagine you know, okay, so you're busy on, on a production line or on the shop floor. You get to the supervisor level or a, a lead manager or something like that. The amount of decisions they're making on a daily basis can be quite extraordinary and they become somewhat battle fatigued from making a decision about yet one more thing. So, and we know risk is about making better decisions daily. Why don't you help them make a decision on how to, how to resolve a problem versus just putting the problem in their um, lap and saying over to you. So yeah. be part of the solution, not just part of the problem. Yeah. Look, I definitely suffer from decision fatigue. Mm. By the time it gets to to dinner and people in my house ask what's for dinner, they wonder yeah. why I like scream at them. Just yeah. like, why do I have to decide? I don't <laughs> want to decide. Like, come out. That's it. So somebody else make dinner for once. Absolutely. That wraps up this episode on hmm. leadership commitment and as we said before this part directly aligns with section 5.2 of the ISA standard in uh, risk management on 31,000. Uh, we've had a look at how leadership can demonstrate that they're committed to the process of, of risk or other compliance systems within an organisation. We've had a look at what good looks like, what bad looks like, the importance of going and assigning authority, responsibility and accountability uh, with any policy that's written in your business, not just the organisation policy, which is the overriding, overriding policy for the business, but any other type of procedural policy that falls under that. So next week, or in the next episode, I should say, we're going to get into looking at integrating and adapting that risk management framework that we spoke about in episode one into your organisation. I hope everybody can join us then. Pete, any final words? If anyone has any questions or queries after listening to this and they want to 
seek further clarification or more details, please reach out to either Amanda or myself and we'll be more than happy to assist you. Awesome. So thank you very much, everybody. I bid you farewell, Peter, my trusty sidekick. (laughs) I hope you have an awesome week. Chat next time. Right. Talk to you later. You've been listening to HACCP Chat with HACCP Mentor. For all your food business, HACCP, quality and food safety compliance tools, check out our website at www.hacapmentor.com. You can also find all the links and resources mentioned in the show notes of this episode. 